the Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 105. Hello and welcome to the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help you on your path to becoming a physician. If you're struggling with last-minute MCAT studying, not getting the scores you want on the practice tests, go to nextsteptestprep.com and check out their great one-on-one MCAT tutoring services. We've had Brian from Next Step on the podcast before, back in sessions 59 and 87, so go back and check those out to hear more about them. Go to nextsteptestprep.com and through January 2015, save $100 off any of their one-on-one MCAT tutoring sessions by mentioning this podcast. This week, I reached out to Dr. Brian Vardabedian, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of medicine. I first met Brian through Twitter, which is where he has seen a social health revolution and its influence on doctors and patients. He also writes about the intersection of medicine, social media, and technology at his blog, 33charts.com. We're going to discuss his path to medicine, his new book, The Public Physician, and some of the ins and outs of being a physician in today's online world. Brian, thanks for joining us today on the show. Let's talk about your path into medicine. Now, did you have a a traditional path to medical school? I had a pretty traditional path into medical school, Ryan. I think if you consider the fact that I went to college without really knowing what I wanted to do, I kind of fell into medicine, I guess, during my sophomore, junior year in college and volunteered in an emergency room and found that I really enjoyed it. And so, in that respect, it was a traditional path into medical school, although I did take a couple of years off after med school, after college rather, and did some work in a psych hospital and uh, took some graduate courses and whatnot. What made you initially go into that emergency room to give you that kind of aha moment or that experience that made you know you wanted to go to med school? Yeah, you know, I started uh, thinking that I wanted to go into graduate school in biomedical sciences, and I think it was uh, probably during my sophomore year of college that I just had some personal experiences that got me interested in what medicine was about. I really never considered it, and so I decided to spend a little bit of time volunteering in an emergency room, which, uh, as it turns out, was at Mass General Hospital. And at the time, they had a very organized volunteer program in the summer since there were so many undergraduates in Boston. And I really enjoyed it. So decided to poke around further with it and thought about taking the MCAT when I was a junior and kind of went from there. That's awesome. Now, what are you doing now? Where has this path taken you? Yeah, so I guess I went to med school at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester and went on to do internship and residency in pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I subsequently went on to do a fellowship in pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition at uh, Baylor College of Medicine. I graduated, went into private practice for about eight years, subsequently came back to Baylor College of Medicine in a remote clinic where I work today. I have taken a little 
little bit of a side path into digital medicine and public communication, which we'll probably talk about. But uh, I practice full-time as a pediatric gastroenterologist in the Woodlands, Texas. Great. Yeah, and that's why I invited you on the show, why I reached out to you, is because of this kind of side path that you talked about. When did you initially get interested and start dipping your toes into this side life that you have now? You know, it's, it's interesting because I always tell people that I'm like the, uh, the dog that gets trapped in the apartment for the day. If they're bored, they start chewing on the sofa. <laughs> and when I was in private practice, I wrote a couple of books for parents. And I've, I've always been a communicator, and I always have suggested that I'm a communicator who became a physician. But I wrote a book in 2006 called Colic Solved, which was published by Random House at the time. And back then, everybody said, well, if you're an author, you have to have a blog. There was no social media back then, and so I uh, dutifully started a blog with the selfish intent of selling lots of books and realized shortly into, or a few months into starting the blog, that this was a platform to the world and there was a whole other set of opportunities available to me from writing publicly. Yeah. And so you said, holy moly, I can touch so many people with this. I need to do something with this for medicine? Well, yeah, yeah. So the blog was really, it was called Parenting Solved, and it was really a spin on Colic Solved. And it was sort of an informational blog where I translated common, you know, things that were happening in medicine and pediatric medicine translated for parents. It was actually, it was a great site. And, but yeah, yeah, I saw this opportunity. And so I kind of kept going with it. But less with the mindset that I was trying to sell books. It was more like, like you said, holy moly, this is something big. And that led to me jumping into Twitter in 2008 and seeing lots of doctors in the public space. And that's kind of led me further along. Now, you just mentioned Twitter and seeing lots of doctors in the public space. But I'm assuming that when you're talking to your colleagues near you in Texas, you were getting lots of blank stares about having a blog and being on Twitter. What was that like initially when you said, hey, I'm out there online? Yeah, no, that's a great question because it's so interesting, Ryan, to see the transition because in 2006 when I started blogging, 2008 when I first really got into public conversations, there was a lot of pushback, especially within the academic world. I can just remember quite clearly some of the conversations that happened during staff meetings when uh, when public dialogue came up and things have really shifted and now I become uh, something of an agent of change at Texas Children's Hospital where I work and Baylor College of Medicine where I work. So I've uh, evolved as something of a resource, but you're absolutely right. There was a lot of pushback initially and it was uh, it was dicey at times. What do you think drove that pushback? Was there a fear that you're giving away our secret sauce, or was there a fear that the lawyers are going to come knocking? You know, I, I don't think that people were even that advanced at that point to even understand what the risks were to be that concerned. It was more the fact that it was something so... The public dialogue and conversation in wide open spaces was so foreign that people couldn't quite get their hands around it. You know, medicine is a very, very staid profession, and we have uh, within it 
what I like to call the culture of permission. We simply don't do anything as physicians or pre-meds. We see this you know, to the nth degree in pre-meds. We do nothing without getting permission or you know, doing something that someone else has done before us. Yeah. So from 2006 and 2008, when you started to get more into the social media aspect, how have you seen that grow for medicine and what are some of the pros and cons in that? You mean, how have I seen it grow for medicine? You mean... How are physicians <laughs> utilizing this now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In 2008, when I first got into Twitter, there were very few physicians on that platform and just as few on Facebook. And it was a very, very intimate area. And it's, it was interesting back then because it was a little wilder because we were a lot looser because nobody was listening. It has evolved over time to become more of a professional space, and there are more doctors on there. We now know that everybody's watching, everybody's listening, all of our employers are listening, all the deans are listening, and so it's really evolved from what was once a really kind of fun and experimental space to one that's a little bit more staid and a little bit more proper uh, with the way we do things. But docs are appearing in on public platforms more and more by the day. I mean, it's, uh, I've lost track with the hundreds of thousands of doctors that are out there sharing and creating and curating and having conversations. Yeah, it's fun to see that. It's been amazing to watch it transpire, really, because it's been amazing just to watch doctors make mistakes and to watch people sort of come into their own because this whole concept of Speaking in public is sort of a brand new thing for us, and we barely know what the tools are to use to have these conversations, let alone what the rules are we should live by. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the rules and maybe what you're doing with the digital smarts. What is that, and what are you teaching? Yeah, so as every medical school has encountered, there have been transgressions at every medical school with their medical students and medical students not knowing how to navigate the public space. And so every school has felt the need to have some kind of educational element that prepares their students. Unfortunately, most of the education that's happened in most medical schools has been really centered around mitigation of risk and kind of CYA stuff for the schools. We thought we'd go a step further and create something a little bit more robust for our students at Baylor College of Medicine. And so I approached the president back uh, a couple of years ago with the proposal for a, a longitudinal curriculum called Digital Smarts. It's essentially a four-point uh, curriculum that takes students through their first days of orientation and brings them right up to a match day. And the early parts of the curriculum, which are done all in small group sessions, are done or the early part is centered on mitigation of risk and how not to be stupid. And that's usually where, where most medical schools end. It's all about risk. We go a step further and uh, take things right up to their fourth year and hopefully prepare them for uh, how to use social networks and public dialogue for enrichment and personal learning networks. One other thing that's unusual about our program is we deliver information to our students based on the context of where they're at. For example, 
at 18 months before Baylor students are about to go on the wards, that's when we have all of our case discussions and dialogue about relationships with patients, uh, using smartphones on the wards. A lot of schools will do that at orientation when students simply aren't prepared or in the mindset to deal with that information. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm interested, you talked a lot about this mitigation of risk and how not to be stupid, which is very important. And then you say you take it a step further. What would be a reason why a physician or medical student should even dabble in this to begin with? Is there a reason they should be online and then learn how not to be stupid? Yeah, well, I think the what's important to understand is if we, and to start with, it's important to, to keep in mind that for the better part of medic, you know, the history of medicine, physicians have lived in a very siloed existence where their relationships and their connections have all been based upon who's in their immediate physical space. Our colleagues in our clinics, our nurses, our patients who come and see us, and that's always been the story of our relationships. When the internet came and we got into Web 2.0, we developed the capacity to become part of the conversation. We became broadcasters and publishers, and with that came a whole new set of responsibilities. So I like to think about we have kind of our private space and we have our public space. And so this public space is where all the leaders of the future are going to be. So you can say to yourself, well, this is something as a student that I don't want to take a chance with. This is something that's too risky for me as a pre-med student. Unfortunately, you really don't have a choice because we increasingly over time are all public as physicians. The moment we lay our hands on a patient, we become part of the public conversation because that patient is going to talk about us. The moment we update our Facebook page after getting our graduation diploma in medical school, we become public physicians. So it's really not an option to be public anymore. So it becomes a question of how are you going to handle that public presence? Are you going to take hold of it and take advantage of it, or are you going to sit back and worry about all the problems and the dangers that you can get into? Now, admittedly, we, we do have to worry about the problems and the dangers and the risks, but conversation is totally dominated by the risks that we face. We almost never talk about the opportunities that we face as medical students or uh, as physicians. I want to talk about the opportunities, but I want to jump on something you just said about the minute you get your diploma and you update your Facebook page, now you're a public figure. And I think in a lot of people's minds, that's a very straightforward, from that point forward, I am now a public figure. But they forget that everything else that they've posted in the past is now fair game as well. Yeah. Have you seen in this role that you have, have you seen mistakes that have maybe hurt a physician or hurt a medical student or any examples that you can give us that pre-meds now and medical students can hope to avoid? Well, you know, what's, what was so interesting to watch, Ryan, is the fact that, you know, I work with our Baylor pediatric residents at Texas Children's Hospital, and there's a huge percentage of our incoming interns who adopt a scorched earth policy when they're applying for residency, meaning they level all of their social properties before applying. Mm -hmm. uh, many of these uh, students, many of these have done this before applying to medical school as well. So there's this fear that what they've done in the past is going to catch up with them. And truly, medical schools and residency programs are beginning, are 
I think it's uh, 10-15% of medical schools look at social profiles or delve into that. So it's, it is a real concern. It's probably overstated. I mean, the things that we've done in the past, it's a real transition for us because we're moving from this sort of sophomoric state in college where we use social channels for our own personal selfish need. And as we transition into using social channels for sort of professional means, there's a contrast there. And very often we do have to level those profiles and start fresh again which is generally a safe policy to do. It's hard to find stuff once it's leveled. It can be found, but I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a tricky area. Yeah, I think the best answer is to be professional <laughs> at all times, but it's hard to tell a teenager that that's hanging out on Twitter and Snapchat and wherever else the the new app that pops up these days. No, yeah, no doubt. You know, when our students come into medical school, having used all of these platforms for all these personal reasons. And as I said, a transition has to happen during medical school and certainly into residency where our public presence is really reshaped. And sometimes we do have to level it and start over again, which I, I certainly advocate for that because there's, at a certain point, there's only so much you can do to sort of cover up what you've done in the past. But you do have to make a resolution to understand that with what we share, you know, there's an element of scalability and permanence and searchability that we shouldn't be afraid of. We should actually leverage that. We should not be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Rohit from the biopsy, he's, uh, he's now at Oregon State. Yep, I've had him uh, on the podcast. You probably had him on. And, yep. you know, he, most pre-meds are afraid of their public presence and they try to hide it. He used his blog and said, I hope people see it. Yep. Just totally revolutionary because I deal with, teach Rice undergraduates at, uh, or undergraduates at Rice University and they're all just petrified that, Someone's going to misunderstand something they say, but that's the wrong mindset. We have to grab this opportunity and use it and leverage it. There's a pre-med out there, Jamie Davis, who's I interact with a lot on Twitter and as part of our membership site. But he talks about all the time, he uses his real name on Twitter, and he talks about this engagement that he has with medical school admissions committees because a lot of them are on Twitter as well. And he knows that these connections are going to help him when he applies next year to medical school. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a totally different mindset. And I would even go a step further and suggest that going forward, I think it would be really powerful for admissions committees to look at an applicant's digital footprint. And you can tell so much from what people do the conversations they have, the things that they create, the things they write, their thinking, you can learn so much. And to think that we admit people into medical school based upon these put-together essays, I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the opportunities. And you've mentioned already the ability to create and everybody's watching, everybody's listening. That includes potential patients. Now, you talked about being in private practice before, and my wife's in private practice as a neurologist, and it's all about getting patients in the door. And the first thing patients do is Google something. Headaches, neurology, Boston is what they would do. And if my wife had a blog and she's talking about headaches, Google knows, hey, let's show this patient Allison's profile and what she's writing about. And that can drive patients through the door and money into the clinic and ultimately right. money into your pocket, basically. So there's a huge opportunity for that as well. Right. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, to your point, it gets to what we refer to as content strategy, which is where we generate and create content or media as a means of attracting the people that we want to come to us. This is what Fortune 500 companies do everywhere, and this is what smart physicians do as well. The market will no longer bear or sustain people who refuse to sort of participate in this public dialogue. And so the docs who understand this, the docs who can create content and draw people in are the people who are going to sort of win the game. And one of the mistakes I see hospitals make, it's really interesting, hospitals love to talk about themselves. They love to talk about their new cardiac wing, and orthopedic surgeons love to talk about their fancy offices and everything else, but patients don't care about that. Patients want information that works for them, and so smart doctors will create the content that patients want to read, and the patients will get to them through that strategy. Yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity moving forward because not a lot of people are doing it right now. Not a lot of physicians are doing it. No, absolutely. It's still in a pretty good spot. There is a lot of noise being generated out there, so in order to really capture those eyeballs, you have to be a little bit creative with what you do. But as I always tell students and physicians when I'm teaching them about this stuff is that visibility creates opportunity. As that old saying, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Mm -hmm. The more visible I am and the more content I create, the luckier I get. And so that that goes for medical students, attending physicians, and everybody. Let's talk about your book that you recently published called The Public Physician. What was the purpose behind that? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it was, I have, I think, 250,000 words on my site, 33 charts, which is my blog over the past six years. And so there's a lot of practical wisdom on there on how physicians should handle themselves in sort of the public realm. There are a few guides out there on social media and reputation management, but I was trying to strive for something a little broader and trying to go after this whole idea of how we handle ourselves when we're in public. So learning how to use social media is fine, but learning where social media takes us and whatnot is kind of what I was going after. So this concept of the public position is that whole, that whole role, that whole public role that I talked about just a moment ago. So it's a book that I think has, like I said, a bunch of practical wisdom and ideas, and I need to build on it and grow it. I plan to do that, and so it's hopefully a, not a static book, but something that's in evolution. Great. And I bought it a couple weeks ago and have been reading it, and it's an easy read, and it's a good read. I like a lot of what you say in it because it's all practical. Yeah, thank you very much. And I think I even, you know, I've, I've had a fair amount of feedback from people and some a couple of things. I'm this. I'm selling it as a PDF, but I'm going to transition it probably next summer onto an ebook format. I do think I still need to be more practical with it. The big challenge I face with this book is who who is my audience? Mm-hmm. Was it the doctor who hasn't used these tools at all, or is it the is it the doc who's a little bit who's experienced or wants some sort of high level advice? So that was the biggest challenge I faced. Yeah. And you can craft that as you go. Absolutely, because it's, uh, again, it's not static. And yep. I'll have another, if you, anyone who, per, you can go to 33charts.com and purchase this. And when the new edition comes out in the spring, it's almost like a subscription. You'll get it, just a free download. So it'll be, if anyone is interested, it's a great opportunity. Great. Yeah, I recommend it. Let's talk about 
that inexperienced physician coming out of residency and wants to start being part of that public dialogue, what should be their first step? So that's a great question because this is one of the hardest things that people face or doctors face is like, where do I begin? And sort of the first, of course, the first step is to think about what you might want to get out of this. There are so many things that we can do with our public presence, be it pursuing a passion like I do, talking about the intersection of technology and medicine. It could be to draw patients into our cardiovascular program, our orthopedics program in a city that's very competitive. And so you have to think about what you want to get out of this whole thing. Secondly, you have to think about where you might, you know, where you might live. What's your digital map going to look like? You've got to think about two main areas. You've got to create content. You've got to have conversations. And so that leads to finding people who, who you can role model from or you can, you can look at. Find someone who's doing what you want to do and then watch them for a while. Look at the platforms they're on. If they're using Twitter, spend two or three weeks watching a handful of people who do exactly what you want to do and, and follow them and listen. So listening and watching and observing is probably the first thing I would really recommend people do. I think that's a good idea. And Twitter is actually... I have a list of the 10 resources that pre-med should be using, and Twitter is one of them because I think it's an amazing tool to reach out and listen and reach out and touch everybody that you want to be like in the future. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's really the, it's the social platform of choice for physicians. So certainly for medical students who are looking to, to interact with people like myself or medical schools, uh, Twitter is, is absolutely the place to do it. You can do so many things with Twitter. You can just listen. You can create a human signal for yourself and just sort of do a lot of listening. You can curate. You can create a lot of value for other people by finding amazing things in two or three days, sharing the best things that you find. And you can build an enormous audience on Twitter if you do a great job bringing great value to people. That's kind of the big, that's the key word is creating value. When you create value, People will come to you and you'll have an audience. Yeah, definitely key. Now, Brian, I want to end with maybe it doesn't have to be your digital footprint. I want to know what your advice would be to that pre-med out there as they're starting their journey and a piece of advice that you have that you've learned along the way. Yeah, you know, I think that as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, this idea of the culture of permission is probably one of the most dangerous cultural elements of medicine. And I think that one of the most amazing things that has come about from the democratization of media and the rise of social media is this idea that physicians are made up of so many voices. You know, there was once a time when the AMA and the public affairs office from the local hospital dictated and determined what we sounded like. But we all have individual voices and we all have individual passions. And you can see that from all the public physicians that you find who follow me and I have dialogues with. And I would really encourage pre-med students to follow their true, true passion and cultivate, have conversations about it, create about it. And when you have a passionate voice, everybody is going to see you and everybody's going to want to hang out with you and everybody's going to want to listen to you. 
And that's when you're going to have the authority to influence others. And that's really where you'll get ahead. And I think really have your, you have your best chance to define yourself before medical school. All right. That was Dr. Vardabedian. Again, you can find him at 33charts.com, which is where he writes. You can find him on Twitter, obviously. He's at Dr. underscore V. And you can check out his new book, The Public Physician, at 33charts.com as well. Go say hi to him on Twitter again, at Dr. underscore V. Don't forget to check out our partner magazine, premedlife.com, where you can go read all about awesome premed information. They write every other month, they release a new magazine, a new issue. Go check them out, premedlife.com. If you haven't yet left a rating or review for our show in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it if you took a minute to go do that medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes is where you can do that. We had one new review come in since we last mentioned it, and it's from CBearBizoo128, who says, a safe haven for future physicians. So thank you for that five-star review. If you listen through Stitcher, you can leave a review there, but iTunes is where we like them the most. So thank you for that. All of the things that we talked about in today's show, you can go to the special show notes page specifically for this episode at medicalschoolhq.net slash 105, as in session 105. You can do that for any of the episodes that you listen to. Just go to the show uh, number after the website name. I hope you got a ton of great information out of today's podcast. And as always, I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters.